0: The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org.
1: Before we open uh, to Romans this morning, I'd like to read Psalm 33 6 through 8, and then also verses 18 through 22. So if you have your Bibles, Please turn to Psalm 33 with me. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. On those who hope for his loving kindness, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in you. Let's pray together. Lord, we need you. Let your loving kindness be upon us and let us hope in you alone. I pray, Lord, that you would guide our hearts and our minds this morning to see your truth and may it cause us to worship you alone. Let us stand in awe of you. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Every so often, my wife and I like to head down to Barnes & Noble and just wander around for a little bit and look at all the books that we know we'll never read. And one thing that I've noticed is just the sheer size of the self-help section. I don't know if you've noticed that, but I have. There seems to be a self-help book for just about everything. There's uh, one for fixing your spouse, fixing your finances, uh, fixing your dog, although that might be something different. Um Even fixing your spiritual life. There's books for everything down there. And uh, it's interesting to me that our culture thinks that we can fix all of our problems by ourselves. Last week in Romans 1, 16 and 17, we saw that God only provides righteousness in the gospel. And that we need to trust in Christ alone to make us righteous. And we touched upon the fact that no one is righteous in themselves. That we have a righteousness problem that we can't fix ourselves and we need God to fix. But what does that mean exactly? What does unrighteousness mean? What does the idea convey? Does it convey that people are pretty good but just not perfect? Our culture would tell us, if, if, if you go down the street and ask a bunch of people, our culture would probably tell us that people are basically good people. They're basically good. Many in our world believe that those people who commit acts of violence or spread words of hatred or are wicked, those people are fundamentally different from you and I. Those people are different from us. Those people are the exception rather than the rule. They place those people in a different category than themselves. However, the Bible paints a different picture. But the picture the Bible paints still consists of two categories of people. There's the pre-Genesis 3 people and the post-Genesis 3 people. For the pre-Genesis 3 people, that would be Adam and Eve, everything started out good. God created them in a sinful state, and it says in Genesis 1.31 that he saw his creation was very good. However, the fall of Genesis 3 changed all that. That one act of disobedience in the Garden of Eden brought upon all of us spiritual death, brought unrighteousness, and it launched humanity into a great downward spiral. Post-Genesis 3 people, like you and I, are born predisposed toward themselves and away from God. Now, all of us here today are post-Genesis 3 people, unless someone's just really old here, and correct me if I'm wrong... But we're all post-Genesis 3 people and we naturally lean toward idolatry and away from God, even when God is right in front of us. And it's to post-Genesis 3 people that Paul writes the text in Romans that we come to this morning. Uh, Turn with me to Romans 1, 18 through 25. In Romans 1, 18 through 25, the Apostle Paul traces three ways that man progressively suppresses God's truth in wickedness. By tracing these three ways we suppress God's truth, he demonstrates our unrighteousness and reduces it to its very base, to its very core, which is idolatry. Now Paul's goal here is not only to convict us, but to warn us and instruct us. And what we'll see in this passage is that God's wrath burns against idolatry. So we must worship, worship Him only. And it's my hope that we'll be challenged by this today. God's wrath burns against idolatry. So we must worship Him only. Oh, that you and I would worship Him only. Read with me Romans one 18 through 18-25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, They did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, So that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. In verses 18 through 20, Paul is setting the stage for his description of the three ways man suppresses God's truth by explaining why everyone is in need of the righteousness provided by God in the gospel which he wrote about in verses 16 and 17. And we talked about those verses last week, but I'm going to refresh our memories by reading them again. Romans 1:16 through 17 says, "For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written," but the righteous man shall live by faith. So why is everyone in need of the righteousness God provides in the gospel? Well, because it says in verse 18, God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We need the righteousness of God to avoid God's wrath. And that righteousness is only attainable through faith in the gospel. Now, the Greek word translated in English as wrath means anger exhibited in punishment. And a lot of people are taken aback by the fact that God would be angry or punish at all. These people may embrace the fact that, as, John, as 1 John 4.8 says, God is love. And then they take that to mean that God is accepting of everything and everyone, no matter what. Unfortunately, it's a common misconception that God is loving is true, but that's not the only characteristic He possesses. He's also righteous, and we see here as in countless other biblical passages that God is angry with sin and its effects. God's wrath does indeed burn against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But it's important to notice that Paul uses the present tense here when he writes that the wrath of God is revealed. It could be translated a different way as as in the NIV translation. It could be translated that the wrath of God is being revealed. Paul's wording here points to God's wrath being a a present reality in some way. And I think most of us here this morning would realize, yeah, God's wrath is coming at some point in the future. It's true that God's wrath will be unleashed at the end of time on Judgment Day. As Romans two 2.5 says, Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. But in Romans 1.18, I don't think that's what Paul has in mind here. He's, he's not talking about some future judgment, but the present inflicting of God's wrath. So how is God's wrath presently revealed? Well, let's look down a few verses here, down to verse 24, and we'll see it at work. Verse 24 reads, Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that, or with the result being, that their bodies would be dishonored among them. In this current age, here and now, God's wrath is generally expressed In this handing over of sinners to their chosen way, their chosen path of sin, and allowing them to reap the consequences. Because sin always results in negative consequences. In a way, God actively withdraws His influence to a certain degree. Now notice that God's wrath is currently against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Rather than against the men themselves. This present revelation of God's wrath is its a foretaste. It's foreshadowing, if you will. A foretaste of God's wrath that is to come on Judgment Day. The ultimate judgment against unrepentant sinners, that is the people themselves, is the permanent withdrawal of God's influence and presence as they spend eternity in hell. The wrath that is revealed now is simply a foretaste of that. And God's wrath is revealed for good reason. The reason is explained in the last part of verse 18 through verse 20. Read it with me. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So the reason God's wrath is revealed is that every person, every person ever, is given knowledge through creation that a powerful God exists, but suppresses or holds back or hinders, we suppress that truth By their unrighteousness or their wickedness, and due to that fact, due to the fact that every person has access to this knowledge through creation, but still chooses to reject them, all people are without excuse and are under God's wrath without Jesus Christ. I hear a common objection or question uh, that arises here, and it's even a question that a lot of Christians have. It's something along the lines of, well, what about the unreached tribal natives somewhere far out in a remote jungle where they may not have the opportunity to hear about Christ? Surely God won't judge them for not knowing Christ, will he? Well, technically no. They will be judged, and they'll be judged according to the fact that they had clear knowledge about God from creation, suppressed it, and therefore rejected God. Their condemnation is based on their rejection of the knowledge of God that they do have. The knowledge of God that all of us have through creation. Paul is very clear in verse 20. He says, they are without excuse. No ifs, no ands, no buts, no maybes. They are without excuse. Then the question becomes to me, is creation really sufficient to communicate knowledge about God. Well, here we're told that God's creation makes known God's eternal power and his divine nature, but how clearly does it really communicate that knowledge? Well, according to Psalm 19, you can turn there if you'd like. According to Psalm 19, creation just doesn't just whisper, it declares and proclaims God's glory. We simply have to be receptive to hearing this proclamation. Psalm 19, 1 through 4 says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God. In the NIV it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The, sk- the skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Now, this is, of course, a, a very limited knowledge of God that is available through creation alone. But, then, but this natural revelation is clear and it's constant. It doesn't, the creation never goes away. It doesn't stop pouring forth speech. Day after day, night after night, It proclaims God's glory. There is sufficient knowledge available from creation to conclude that a being of eternal power and a being that has divine attributes must have created it. And therefore, that being should be the being that is worshipped. It doesn't matter necessarily if a person lives in the furthest, most remote jungle in the world or in the most populous city. Knowledge about God is available through creation, This knowledge is not enough to save anyone, but it is enough to condemn anyone who fails to seek God because of it. Now, in the case of the lost soul in the jungle who looks at nature and realizes that there is a God, and then desires to seek him out, God will deal with him according to his perfect wisdom and his perfect knowledge. He is just and sovereign and we must trust him to do that. I don't believe God will ignore anyone who truly seeks him. As Hebrews 11:6 says, anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now, I don't know exactly how God handles each individual situation. I'd be lying to you if I told you I did. But I do know that he can, he is able to use the creation to turn people towards himself. Now, a man by the name of Bernard Northrup is a living example, he's living proof that God's glory displayed in creation is sufficient to make people realize that God exists, and it can even cause them to seek him. In 1944, Bernard was 19 years old, pretty new into the Navy, and he was stationed on the island of Maui, uh, defending the country, I'm sure. Uh He used to lay in the grass behind his barracks and just look out at the beautiful surroundings. And on one such night, he saw a few clouds that were driven over the north end of Maui. And uh, they began to sprinkle the volcanoes there with a light rain. As he watched the falling mist, the full moon's light illumined the droplets and he saw something amazing, something beautiful. The result was a beautiful silver rainbow at night and I've never seen that but he says it was an incredible sight and it was at this moment that he realized that God existed and he cried out to him he knew that such a powerful God deserved to reign over his life as well and he asked God to save him not even really knowing what that meant now of course without knowing Christ he could not be saved that night however uh, not long after that amazing night God's hand was at work to meet Bernard's spiritual need. He got his papers from the Navy earlier than expected to ship off for Chicago where he would uh, attend some avi- aviation mechanic training. And it was on his first night that he arrived in Chicago that he couldn't find a hotel room anywhere in the area uh, that, he, that he found himself. And it was, it was God's hand that led someone at one of the, the big chain hotels to suggest that he tried the Christian businessman's Serviceman center as a last resort to help him find a room it was also God's provision that led a local pastor to recommend a young lady named Nita for a job at that same businessman serviceman center just days before she stopped by that very night to let the manager know that she was busy with school and some ministry at church and her schedule just wouldn't allow her to take the job it was the only night that she would be there. Now, while she was speaking with the manager, a young Navy mechanic walked in the door and they began to chat. And it was through her witness that night that Bernard accepted Jesus Christ, December second, nineteen forty-four. Now, that's a cool story, but but notice how our sovereign God led Bernard from that night with the silver rainbow in Hawaii, thousands of miles to Chicago on a specific timetable which allowed him to hear God's provision for his righteousness problem in the gospel. In his grace, God heard Bernard's cry and provided a person to give him the message of Christ needed for salvation. We can trust God to be sovereign and just in these situations. It doesn't matter if that person lives in the remote jungle or the most populous city. Now that doesn't mean every person who realizes from creation that a God exists, doesn't mean that every person who realizes that will accept the gospel, or maybe even hear the gospel. They may only realize He exists, but never turn their hearts toward Him. But in any case, I'm confident that we can trust God to handle these situations according to His perfect knowledge and wisdom. But if you are a Christian here today, it's worth considering how God wants to use you to deliver that message of salvation to the remote jungle, or to Chicago, or Salt Lake City. Now turn back with me to the text. As we go back, Paul has just finished explaining that all people are in need of the gospel because all people are under God's wrath since we have all suppressed God's truth. A truth which we had from creation. Everyone has that. But beginning in verse 21, he turns toward the three ways man progressively suppresses God's truth through wickedness. The first part of verse 21 says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. So the first way we suppress God's truth is that although we know God or we know about God, we don't honor Him as we should. We know God, but we don't honor Him as we should as we should. Now, as we saw earlier, all people have a kind of knowledge about God through the created universe. And since we all have that knowledge, we must all decide how to act upon that knowledge. If you only know about God because of His creation, you cannot put your faith in Christ because you haven't heard about Christ. Someone must preach Christ to you. However, you can... Be thankful to to the Creator for the amazing world He created and that we live in and try to seek Him out to know more. You can do that. That is what God's natural revelation is designed to do. We saw in Psalms, it proclaims the glory of God. It's designed to declare His glory to us. You can recognize that since He created the entire universe, He has a unique position that only He has as the supreme ruler of all things and that that has implications for your life. Unfortunately, since we are all post Genesis 3 people, we suppress the truth God has given us about himself and decide not to exalt him nor seek him out. We refuse to recognize his right to be honored as the king of kings. And it's not just the non-Christian who fails to honor God as as they should. We as Christians can and often do neglect to honor God as we should. And what makes it worse is we have a much deeper knowledge of God through His Word, which testifies to Christ. You know, I can sometimes fall into the habit of taking God for granted and and not honoring Him or giving Him thanks for who He is and what He's done. And I'm sure you can relate to to that. But praise God Praise God that He withholds His judgment from me because of the intercession of Christ on my behalf. We see that in Hebrews 7.25 and 1 John 2.1. We as Christians should be about honoring and worshiping and giving thanks to our great God above all else. Now failing to honor God as we should progressively leads to the second way we suppress God's truth. Paul tells us in the, in the next part of verse 21 here, what happens when we don't honor God or give Him thanks. He writes, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. The phrase, they became futile in their speculations, simply refers to worthless and foolish thinking. So the second way we progressively suppress God's truth is that our minds turn toward worthless things. Our minds turn toward worthless things. God created us. He created our minds. And He created our minds to be fixed on Him, to be mesmerized by Him, and to be full of thoughts of His goodness and His glory. In Colossians 3.2, Paul writes, "...set your mind on the things above..." not on the things that are on the earth. But we ignore God's design for our minds and suppress the truth of God by which we are to be captivated by turning our minds toward worthless things. What does it mean to turn our mind toward worthless things? Paul explains it by adding, and their foolish heart was darkened. Now, the heart is not the physical organ of the heart. The Greek word that we translate as heart is, in English is a, is a pretty broad term that refers to the center of a person or the inner man and it includes the mind so he's not going in a different direction he's telling us that turning our mind towards worthless things means to set our mind on anything that darkens our understanding and appreciation for who God is anything that pulls us away from God but we do this often don't we? We focus on what's right here in front of us rather than on the glory and the majesty of our great God. Our mind can turn towards worthless things like mind-numbing television or the latest get-rich-quick scheme, the next bigger or better purchase, or pornography. But the foolish and worthless things we turn our minds toward don't have to be bad in themselves. It might be that our thoughts or your thoughts or our thoughts, collectively, might be on something good, like our kids, or ministry in the church, or any number of other things that we think about. However, fixing our mind on these things becomes worthless and even foolish when we focus so intently on them that we become distracted from God. We can make God an afterthought when we don't set our minds on the things above, on the things of Him. And Paul tells us that the consequence of turning our mind toward worthless things in verse 22 through 25. Read those with me. He says, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and four footed animals, and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Turning our minds toward worthless things eventually and always results in idolatry. Once our minds turn away from God, it's only a matter of time. It's, it's a slippery slope. The third way that we progressively suppress God's truth is by far the most offensive to God. We foolishly exchange the truth of God for a lie. We foolishly exchange the truth of God for a lie. It seems kind of harsh to say, and it was a little bit shocking for me to realize this about myself, But all of us at one time or another are guilty of idolatry. We replace our most glorious God with something else that we desire instead. Only God is worthy of worship and only He will satisfy our desires. Now desiring something ahead of God is not just suppressing the truth of God, but this final stage is actually completely abandoning the truth of God for a lie. Most of us I assume, I haven't been to all your homes, but most of us don't physically worship idols made of precious metals and and in the form of of men or birds or, or any other kind of creature. Most of us don't do that. I think we're far too sophisticated for that, right? Our idols are a lot harder for our neighbors and even ourselves to identify and detect. Now, I read a story about a prominent businessman from overseas who was just really rich he was a wealthy guy and he wasn't just a wealthy guy he was a wealthy guy that also wanted to honor god in everything that he did no matter what anybody said he was blessed with a big family and a nice house and a lot of material things but then one day tragedy struck he was informed by one of his employees his employees that his competitors had succeeded in a hostile takeover, and that he was now bankrupt. He was distraught. after all, it had been a family business he built up from ground level. Before he even had time to, to digest that and to figure out what to do, he received another message: a message that a tornado had struck his family's home and that all of his children had been killed. Now, in one day, he lost everything except for the clothes on his back and his wife. Now, can you imagine the pain and the frustration that this guy must have felt? I've never had to go through anything remotely even similar to this, but it makes me stop and think about my life. I get upset about these stupid little things, like when I I pray to God and ask Him for something, and he doesn't seem to do anything. I can get worried, I can get frustrated, and I can even get mad at God that he's not doing what I want. <laughs> I, I, I pray to him so that he'll do what I want. That maybe is not the best way to do it, but I'm sure that at times you can relate to it. I think that I know best, so I put my own desires ahead of my desire for God. Now, the astounding part of this story was that the guy didn't get bitter. He didn't get frustrated well maybe he got frustrated but he didn't get angry with God it was tough for him especially when in the wake of all his losses his health began to fail it was even reported that his wife was so grief-stricken that she told him it would be better if he cursed God and died but in all this he didn't sin against the Lord now I can't help but wondering, why is there such a gap between Job's reaction to adversity and my own reaction to adversity and perhaps your reaction to adversity? And I think it's because I'm guilty of idolatry. It's extremely important to pay attention to what Paul says in verse 23 here. He writes that we exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Now it's no accident that in this list Paul puts man as the first form idolatry takes because all sin reduced to its very base is actually idolatry it's self-worship we desire our own comfort our own power our own glory our own way more than we desire God as post-Genesis 3 people we're born predisposed towards ourselves and away from God And only by his grace and the gospel of Christ can we be reoriented to be inclined toward him. Even then, we can occasionally lose our bearings and revert back to this self-worship. It's when we foolishly exchange the truth of God for a lie that we most deserve God's wrath. Because his wrath burns against idolatry. He detests it because only He is God, and only He is worthy of worship. He will not share His glory with another. He will not. But there is hope. God doesn't leave us just sitting there, condemned under His wrath. If you've never turned to Him, and you've never accepted His gift of righteousness and eternal life in the Gospel, you must turn to Christ in faith. You must realize that you're unrighteous, that you've been an idolater and turn to him in faith. The gospel is the power of God for salvation from his wrath. Trust in Christ alone to fix your righteousness problem and bring you into a relationship with God. It's the only way. Now, if you're already a believer here this morning, I think it would help us to examine ourselves. Examine yourself to see if you're desiring anything more than God even now. We can fool ourselves into thinking we worship and desire God more than anything else. But in reality, we desire only His benefits to us. If you desire God's peace so that you don't feel worried, if you desire His forgiveness so that you don't feel guilty anymore, or if you want to go to heaven so that you don't feel pain, then you desire those things more than God Himself. It is idolatry. He wants us to desire him alone. The gospel is not a gift bag that we reach into and pull out a prize so we can feel good. The gospel is God's means to bring peace between himself and us. The gospel gets us God back. Now God's wrath burns against idolatry so we must worship him only. Do you and do I truly Desire God above all else? Well, that's a question you've got to wrestle with and a question that you can only answer. We must desire God. He is worthy of worship and only He. He is worthy of praise and only He. Worship Him alone because Romans 1.25 says He is blessed forever. Let me pray for us. Lord, we are in need of your grace. Lord, help us desire you above all else and let us cast down our idols and turn to you in worship. You alone are worthy. Reorient our lives once again to be inclined toward you and away from ourselves. To you be the glory forever. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is... Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lyon Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.